Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Judgment Call, a podcast where I talk to risk takers, adventurers, travelers, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. My name is Torsten Jacoby, and I'm your host. This episode of Judgment Call is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. Mighty Travels Premium finds the travel deals that you really want, and it finds them as they happen. Between 450,000 airfares every day, they give you the best deals in economy, premium economy, business, and first class. We also make recommendations for four and five star hotels all over the planet when they are much cheaper than they usually are. Thousands of subscribers have saved more than 95% on their airfare tickets and have flown the business class, life-led, transcontinental using our deals. In case you didn't know, Americans, Europeans, and many other nationalities can now travel to more than 80 destinations again. Give it a shot and try a Mighty Travels Premium for free for 30 days today. You can sign up at mightytravels.com slash MTP. For everyone who's troubled with all these characters, go to MTP for you. That's just five characters, MTP for you.com. I'm very excited today to have Steve Schwartz as my guest on the Judgment Call podcast. Steve is an author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. And uh, back in 1981, Steve co-founded one of the first AI companies called Cognitive Systems. And Steve has uh, taken up a lot of interest into AI again after putting the topic a little bit of back burner in the 90s. Steve also wrote um, a book, free ebook, Artificial Intelligence 101, which is available on his website, AIPerspectives.com. And his upcoming book is Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity. Hi, Steve. It's great to have you. How are you? Good. Hi, Torsten. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's a big topic that you have for your book. It is. Yeah, I'm excited about it coming out. What? What is the, the main theme of the book? Um, you know, I can, I can it, see that from the title, obviously. It sounds like you're, you have a different view on AI than most people have. And I'd say most people, um, the consensus right now is that AI has this um, enormous success in the last couple of years. And um, we will see the same success and kind of world-changing success that we've seen over the last five years. We will see more of this in the next five to 20 years you see this slightly different, correct? A, a little bit different, yeah. Yeah, so it, AI has clearly made great strides from an engineering perspective. Siri answers our questions. Google Translate helps us talk to taxi drivers in, in foreign lands. Our, our smartphones automatically identify the faces in our photos. Uh, and that, that progress, as you said, it naturally leads people to wonder where it will all end. Will robots get so smart they turn us into pets? Tesla founder Elon Musk says, AI is humanity's biggest existential threat, and it poses a fundamental risk to the existence of civilization. Uh, similarly, the late renowned physicist Stephen Hawking said, it could spell the end of the human race. I, I'm very frustrated with this kind of fear-inducing hype. Um, and the concomitant overstatement of AI capabilities by, by vendors. And that's what spurred me to write this book. In, in my book, I explain in, in simple terms to a mainstream audience why AI systems are not going to become intelligent enough to have the ability to exterminate us, 
turn us into pets, or even take all our jobs. That's that's good to hear. <laughs> I yeah. you know I Sam Harris makes a similar point, and I I listened to his pet uh, talk uh, a while ago, and I think the 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 basic uh, myth goes like this: the way is we we have a very small amount of intelligence that we see in in machines and the question is obviously how do we define intelligence i think we're going to get into that but what happens is it's definitely it's rising so something is there that we can finally we had it in the 80s probably and i'm curious about that um story a lot and uh, we had it in the 80s but now we see the sudden rise and the question is not will machines take over from sam harris's point of view and i think elon musk makes a similar view it is only a question of when and uh, it probably won't be in our lifetimes i think that's that's we can all agree on this but is it in 200 years is it in 2000 years is it in 200,000 years um at one point you know we 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 can all agree the, the question is and I, the, the a lot of people who work with ai and who are close to that topic if you ask them, they would all say, well, this is, this is not even in the books right now. I mean, this is not something you have to worry about. But as further you move out and zoom out, um, a lot of people say, well, it, it might be not in my lifetime, but it could be in my children's lifetimes. And um, it, it is something we should think about. It's a bit like the, the, nuclear, the nuclear bomb. We, we knew the basic technology for this uh, 100 years ago, but it took 30, 40 years to make it happen. And then it would have been good to be prepared and be morally as well as policy-wise prepared for this. And I think this is where most of the, the fear comes from. This fear is generated in order to generate this, this push to create policy. Um, you know, is it really like the bomb, the nuclear bomb, or is a better analogy time travel? Um, in, in my view... Even though we, we've done a great job with with creating things that work with AI, no one has any idea of how to build common sense into computers, and that's what you what you really need to get intelligent computers. Um, and all of the tech, all the different AI technologies we have today, they're all dead ends when it comes to this level of intelligent computers. So. We really have to start from scratch. Even though we've built great things, we can't use any of those great things to build, you know, what some people call human-level intelligence and what some people call artificial general intelligence. Um, and, and to me, that that makes this more analogous to time travel. You know, people have some crazy theories about how time travel might develop someday, um, but. Do we really, would, would you want to say that time travel is around the corner or, you know, maybe in our children's lifetimes? I think I saw a headline about time travel, but that, maybe that wasn't, that wasn't real. Um, seemed like the cold fusion that seems to pop up every 10 years and then it turns out it isn't real. But uh, I, I saw it on, on, a, on an atomic level that there was time travel suddenly was possible. Um, at least there was a paper that was published. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was bad measuring. Um, Maybe let's dive into this uh, first a little deeper. Um, I read your book, the the uh, AI One Hundred One, and uh, it's a lot about math. There's a lot of statistics, and you you break it down. I think you do a fantastic job there. You break it down into, 
I think most readers can understand that. And I, I've been using a lot Thank of you. AI tools myself the last 12 months. And I think this is this was wonderful for me. Um, even knowing some of the details, I could see a lot more. I got a much wider zoom out picture. And uh, I thought that's fantastic. And what, what you realize, and I think we both know that, is that at the current stage, um, it, it's kind of it's slightly better than a brute force guessing mechanism. That's how most AI works. And... Uh, uh, that that's not the picture most people have in mind, but I think what's what what the results that this brute force guessing um, generates is sometimes just short of being magic. Yeah, yeah. Like when, you, uh, like when we when we see what it does say at Google, and it gives us we we like my, my my children talk on Alexa about a certain topic, which is really creepy, and then two days later we have an ad about the exact same topic. And I'm like, whoa, this is pretty cool. Too creepy. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of like magic to me. Um, and that's what, what I wanted to get at is at what point is, you know, basic math um, and basic guessing algorithms, at what point do they look like magic? Like, say, we, we have some kind of technology which is basic, but introduced to someone 5,000 years ago would look like magic. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's right. Um, but, you know, let's look at it from another perspective. So in the late seventies, when I was getting my, working on my PhD at Johns Hopkins in, in Baltimore, Maryland, I taught statistics at Towson university. Um, and I taught students regression and classification, um, Regression being learning from an input table how to predict a numerical output or learning classification being learning from an input table how to predict the classification. So, for example, um, I remember teaching, you know, if you had a, 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 a big table of historical sale prices and, you know, you had a column that had how many rooms in the house and with the square footage and so forth, you could build a regression algorithm that would predict sales prices for houses that hadn't come on the market yet. And it, it wouldn't be perfect, but today's systems aren't either. Um, and you know what? We didn't call it learning back then. We called it computing a function. And if anybody were to say, yeah, so those functions have some intelligence in them, you'd, you'd say they're crazy. No, those are just stupid functions. But actually, every AI program today is just one of those stupid functions. It's either a regression function or a classification function. And the difference between now and, and in 1978 is that with bigger computers and better algorithms, we can produce, we can calculate much more complex functions um, that can do some pretty impressive things, but it's still pretty much you're taking a, a, a table of inputs and predicting a classification. So, for example, facial recognition is just taking a, a table of images as input, each one labeled with the correct name, and then learning to classify an image with that correct name so that if you see another image of one of the people that it had learned about, it would be able to correctly predict that 
person X is that image. But that's all it can do. It, it can only do that one function. It can't do another visual function like determining, distinguishing a dog from a cat. It can't translate language. It can't do anything else. And if you try to teach it to yeah. do something else, it forgets how to classify faces. Yeah, you had this example in your book, um, and I thought that's really interesting. When, when some of the researchers introduced incorrect labels, say um, it was um, a monkey with a guitar, they yeah. would suddenly start um, recognizing that monkey um, based on the facial attributes as a certain person. And every human who would look at this, the first immediate thought is that's not a person. We don't have to worry about the facial images for, for human facial recognition. Um, but computers are not able to distinguish that at some point, unless you specifically tell them that's something they need to train for. Right. Yeah. So, so in, 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 that, in that example, because there had never been a guitar um, in, the, in the training data set, or, or wherever there was a guitar, it was always associated with a human. It, it latched onto that guitar and said, oh, this is a picture of a human holding a guitar, not a monkey. Yeah, these algorithms are easy to fool, and the the I think the the question is, will they ever uh, get to to some sense making? And I, you know, we we see these headlines, and there was last week was DeepMind's success in figuring out protein folding, which seems to be, and since then there's been mess, mixed messages coming out that this isn't as big a deal as it sounded and uh, it wasn't actually such a big step forward but definitely it's it's a challenge that we've been having for 50 years and also there were there were lots of talk that google duplex some some ai that they trained was apparently um being able to fool the turing test so those are in computer science these things have been around forever and we didn't make any progress and now we it seems like if you, if you look on Twitter every other day, there is something that has been around for 50 or 100 years and we're suddenly able to perfectly solve it, but certainly we're getting close to solving it. That, that's that's got to account for something. It does. It does. But, but what I would say is every single one of these amazing achievements is because somebody's been able to figure out how to turn it into a classification problem a statistical classification problem. And if we looked at what these systems are doing as computational statistics, as opposed to quote-unquote artificial intelligence, nobody would be worried that they're going to take over the world. People would just say, wow, statistics has really come a long way. But yeah. they wouldn't be worried about uh, the Terminator or uh, computers turning us into pets. Skynet, yeah, Skynet. Skynet, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there's a company called Skynet. I saw that the other day. I'm like, yeah, and there's a there's a magazine, oh. an AI based magazine called Skynet today. Oh. Um, yeah. So we are close. We are close. We're just a couple of years behind. Yeah. What the Terminator <laughs> wants to tell us. Uh, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think we we be making this progress right now? Um, and we haven't made that 50 years ago. Is it just the data set? So the data itself has gotten better and there's more digitized data? Or is it something that just happened because Google needs it? I always feel like because Google makes so much money off AI in advertising, they just put billions at it, like, you know, like the, the 
the public research would be 50 years ago and all that money that they throw at it bores, bears some fruit over time and we are kind of seeing that in the open source community that a lot of that is actually coming from Google. Do you think that's the driver? Um, you know, I think, I think uh, Google got into it after it had happened and, and got into it in a big way. But I think the, the algorithms have evolved. You know, Jer Jeffrey Hinton pursued neural networks and Jan LeCune and Yashua Bengio and Jürgen Schmidt-Huber. Um, and it, it's the neural network algorithms that have enabled us to go from where in 1978, when I was teaching statistics, we were mostly limited to uh, regression functions that were linear. Um, now, with neural networks, we can calculate, I mean, I'm sorry, classification functions that were linear. Now we can calculate classification functions um, uh, that are, you know, in a massive number of dimensions, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of dimensions, you can't even, you can't even um, imagine them. Uh, but these algorithms have just gotten so powerful that they can learn functions that are very, very complex. And that's what enables them um, to do these things. Now, of course, the, the advance in computing power is also a, a big enabler. And big data provides um, a lot more use cases to tackle. But it's mainly been computing power and algorithms that have, uh, that have, have been the improvement from uh, the early days of linear classification functions yeah i mean neural networks sound really fancy that's that's one part that still escapes me a little bit how they actually work um but the the idea is that you you kind of break down the very complex products into less um complicated ones and that's how you solve um these, these many, many dimensions. So how, how does it actually work for on a layman's terms? I know you describe it in the book, but I couldn't really follow it, to be honest. Yeah, you know, um, one of the interesting things about neural networks is that um, it's really hard to figure out what's going on inside the network. Okay. And, uh, you know, just to, to segue onto another topic, we can, I don't know, I don't mean to say we're on another topic, but this is, this is the reason people are so concerned about um, uh, discrimination and AI systems making decisions, because especially if they're neural network based, you don't know what's going on inside that network. You don't know how they're making decisions and, you know, people are being affected to them, be, being affected by them. These systems are determining whether they can get bank loans, um, the facial recognition systems that they're trying to determine if they're if they're terrorists at the airport, um, but we don't know how they're really working inside. Yeah, so th that's, I think, a big problem. Um, all of the AIs that, that I've been working with, um, that I wrote myself, you, th there's two problems. One is you don't know how it arrived at a certain conclusion. Uh, that's a black box. I think that's, that's part of the, the game. And the other big problem is you always need someone to validate the results. There is, you know, inbuilt um, validation efforts that every training comes with, but still you need like a somewhat intelligent person. Typically it's a, it's a human, a data scientist, who then evaluates the results and says, oh, this is what I expected and this is how we are actually doing. And uh, 
so those those two things definitely require um, some common sense that is rare in uh, in the world of AI. Um, but but I'm wondering, isn't is that really something we can that will only be with humans, or isn't there a way that at some point you you will have an AI that can simulate common sense, like we kind of have that in the Turing test on a on a on a uh, simple level? Why is common sense, and I know this, you have that in the book, um, it has way more dimension, it's just a way more complicated problem, but if you, if we cre came from a simple statistics function and now have a thousand dimensions in a neural network, wouldn't be a, we be able to, in 10 years, to do something that has a bit of common sense? If you just describe it as a dimension function or something that you know yeah. we're, we're just trying to look for the right ai that we have to throw at this problem yeah yeah so the problem with that suppose you had all these little 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 modules that could do that could do things and now you're trying to build a big module that'll figure out which sub module to invoke the problem yeah. is that that control module would need common sense you're just pushing off the problem into that, into that control module. The alternative is to write a conventional software program where you say, if X, then Y. Otherwise, if Y, then Z, and, and so forth. And, and that um, we, we know from our history from the 1980s uh, that we can't be successful um, creating human-level intelligence using rule-based systems. It's just too hard. But if so, when when we think about um, AI, we we have that idea that AI is going to be a superhuman, um, the most intelligent person we know, and we know it it, it was beating chess players, um, and yeah, it's done this consistently the last fifteen years. And we always, I always felt like chess players are the most intelligent people on the planet, and um, they were like, I looked up to them, and I still do. And um, maybe that's not a good idea, but that's that's kind of how it felt to me. And uh, yeah. if if we we see children, you know, if I if I asked a three year old about a common sense question, there might be certain things that a three year old has, but in general, we'll be on a really limited level. And I think in between, we have anyone um, who is having a high amount of common sense or has no common sense. And I always feel that AI has now arrived at a level of a teenager maybe not a 16 year old but maybe a 12 year old and 10 years ago was maybe at the level of a four year old so the 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 examples that have been made is that for instance gpt3 is now as good as most teenagers are in school in terms of text and essays that it produces computer code that it can generate um that that doesn't bode so well for teenagers at least right now uh yeah, I, I don't I don't agree with that. Um, if let, let's take those things one one at a time. Okay. Um, let's talk about essays. So if you look at at the essays GPT uh, three generates, at least half the facts are wrong. Um, so it doesn't really understand what it's saying. Yeah, so I, that, would, that would also apply to most teenagers. Oh, you know, 
when I when I created essays in high school, um, I researched them and they were fairly factual. I mean, they may not have been very interesting, but um, uh, but I was able to create factual factual essays, and I think most teenagers can do that. Um, you know, getting back to children. Uh, okay, yes. Yeah, so, so, okay, let's stick with GPT three for a minute. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying the the you know what most like a fifth grader would do or sixth grader, seventh grader. What they would do is they would copy and paste from existing material, um, then maybe change the syntax a little so they're not as easily detected, and that's how usually these things look like. That's not unlike GPT three, which is not an original work, but it's or not not fully original. That's probably not the right term to use there. But it always feels like it's something that comes from a source that already existed because that's how this works. Um, from what I understand, it kind of works like a translating um, AI and is really focused on sequencing. And that's how this works when, when I look at my children. They, they, they look at, they, they, they maybe got a certain, they understand, I don't know, 1% of that topic. Then they look out for material uh, that's already there. Then they recombine it, uh, they rehash it. And then they put this into the form that is the essay, or that's a short essay. Let's give it a short essay, or what's whatever their test paper is about. But they, but they get the facts right. Well, sometimes, yeah, depending on and what the Wikipedia says. Otherwise, they right. get they, wrong. They have no clue. And they have some ideas of they have some idea of what it means. I mean, they may not understand the the big picture ramifications, but they have they have some idea what they're writing. G, GPT three has no idea, and it gets yeah. it'll get it'll get huge numbers of facts wrong. Yeah, but is it? We we that's kind of maybe it's a bit of an observer problem. We 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 have something that presents us with a, with a seemingly logical answer, and it will will take. A bunch of people, maybe right now, just a few minutes, but in a few years, it will take them a few days to figure out, oh, this is the correct answer, or no, that's actually just, it copied it from somewhere else. Like, the verification of the answer, I think, becomes the bigger problem with AIs as they, as they progress. Yeah, although it's, you know, even without AI, we have that, we have that problem with fake news. True. People True read enough. fake news, and they don't bother to verify the facts. Even though they're easily verifiable. Well, do you think? Do you think this whole problem with fake news, which is a relatively recent phenomenon, at least that we we, we have this at that scale, is that driven by AI, um, in the sense that AI and the way we, we we perceive the news now, the way that it directly interacts with our our brain, is that AI has made us more vulnerable or more susceptible to this so that AI is kind of already changing our brain and AI that is running the algorithm for Facebook and Twitter um, and Google it pushes things up that we don't really care if they're fake or not it just it, it, it generates an emotional reaction with us and we are more interested in this at least for the last five years into getting the facts right because a lot of people know how to validate facts but nobody bothers with it we, we focus on the first paragraph that's giving us this emotional adrenaline shock yeah yeah no i think i think that is a problem with ai you know especially when you look at um th those algorithms are there to to generate more engagement so that people stay on the platform and 
click on the ads so that the, the platforms like Facebook make money from it. And so what the algorithms tend to do is, is, is produce, show people more and more um, of, of things they, they might be interested in and, and, and it gets them interested in things. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times um, that process pushes people um, into fringe groups. Um, and, you know, once, once you start getting in those fringe groups, you know, nobody checks facts. It's just, it's just spreading rumors. And yeah. you pass the rumors from one person to another, and it goes viral. And, um, yeah, I think that's a big societal problem. Although I think it has more to do with the social networks than it does to do with AI. <clears throat> the, certainly the AI algorithms contribute to it, but I think it would happen anyway. Yeah. I, I, it's hard to find a, to find. I don't know what the way back is because I feel when when we lived in a non-social media environment, we had, and we had a normal distribution of things that could happen to us. What I'm trying to say is, we 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 do things, and we feel okay. A car driving can be can be dangerous, but driving a car, it nobody ever hit me in the last ten years, so it isn't that bad. So we had like a an intuitive feeling for for the normal distribution of events in our life. But with, with social media and the way AI has, has digested all this, and I think when social media started, it was the same there. It was a reflection of the real world. But since engagement is low of things that you feel like they can never happen to you, they are kind of outside of your sphere, AI has moved and resorted the whole world into something that looks extremely scary. That's why we engage with it. It's, it's scary and maybe in a good way or a bad way. Often, I think the bad way is more accessible. So we always we feel like reading Twitter we get hit by a car immediately. Like the, the normal distribution of experiences has completely been skewed by an AI, and nobody's able to verify this anymore. I don't think the, the engineers set out to do that at Twitter or, or Facebook, but it's kind of running now, and it's kind of, I think this is what, what people feel. This is the danger of AI. You set this thing in motion, and it becomes like a weapon of mass destruction because even the engineers who build it, they maybe can shut it down, but then there's obviously a competitor will come up you can't once this ai is in motion you can't stop it anymore but but is this ai or is it twitter well it's if it's not twitter it would be tiktok if it's not tiktok it would be facebook no no but it's not, it, right maybe, exactly the players that, are that, interchangeable right that's my that's my point it's the it's the social networks not the ai if twitter didn't use any ai you'd get a lot of the same behavior it, it you know ai might no. exacerbate it a little bit i feel um, like it would more reflect like it used to be like say the the early days of facebook it was more boring and there was more lots of random stuff i'd call it on the side but it would reflect um real life better because 99 percent of what we experience is, is randomness right it's just boring randomness that that yep. we don't really worry about we worry about the car crash then we stop and we're like whoa we need to see it is because then we we change our our picture of reality and i think what happens right now is that the, all this obviously you can say that's social media but someone would have used AI for this, maybe not now, maybe in 10 years from now, but the way that is changing our perception is we constantly have to adjust our mental image of the world all the time because there's always a car crash. There's one in the morning when I open my Twitter and there's one in the evening and then there's one for lunch. And these things would only happen to me, you know, I don't know, once a year that I would see a crash on the freeway. But why do you, why do you blame that on AI and not Twitter? <laughs> I wouldn't say I blame it on AI, but I, I feel like 
AI got it gotten so good at that. I mean, the engineers have done a great job that this has gotten this runaway problem that has already changed the life of billions of people. And I don't think Twitter Twitter has used this technology to something evil. You can put it this way, right? Right, um, but I, I, is it is it really suppose suppose they didn't use any AI technology? They just used conventional computer software with if then else rules. They could still have done 90, 95% of what what happens. You know, you you still have lists of people to follow. You still have you'll still have algorithms that will show you the viral posts. Um, uh, you, you'll still be able to um, you'll still be able to figure out things that that you like. Uh, you know, AI sharpens the pencil a little bit and 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 you know makes all these traditional software algorithms a little more pointed. But I don't see it as the AI that's causing these problems. I think they would be there if 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 the social networks didn't use any AI whatsoever. Well, it's certainly at the margin. I, I agree with you. At, at some point, it becomes a definition problem because um, there is, this, this is not like a self-living um, being that has become conscious and now is going to take over the world. That's for sure. That That's not what it happened, how it happened or will happen um, any time soon. But there is something, um, maybe it's just scale. Maybe it's the sheer scale of uh, you just need a bunch of computing computers and every kid can now... Um, um, have an impact on the world's mind uh, in a matter of days if you have the right AI. So maybe, right. maybe but, it's but just the buzzword AI we use too much. That's just what I'm afraid of. Suppose instead of AI, we started complaining about statistics. You know, statistics is taking over the world. Stati Twitter is using statistics to make the you know to push us into fringe groups. Facebook is using st statistics to do. Nobody would get very excited, but when, when you say it's, it's using AI to do that, now people start worrying because of the, um, you know, the, the, the idea of AI as, as the terminator. Maybe that's a forest and tree issue, but people who are close to AI and have worked with it every day, they think it's, it's just an extension of the algo, and I think that's true. Um, that this, you cannot really dispute that. But on the other hand, we see that there's this, this progress that has has made great strides. We, we, we heard that two years ago that Tesla said we're going to have self-driving cars. And mm. now Google is having way more cars on the ground in Phoenix that are supposedly self-driving. I don't know if there's just sometimes no driver in it or like as a safety driver or um, at least they, they made that announcement. That seems to, to most people who, who've seen self-driving cars for 50 years um, as a problem that never got solved and suddenly it's there. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of exciting, and you could it's easy to extrapolate this into the next ten years. Yeah, 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 and it it is it is it is interesting because these self-driving car companies have done amazing work. I mean, I I have a Tesla, and I run it in autopilot. Um, you know, it it probably does ninety percent of the driving. Um, but if I let it do a hundred percent of the driving. I'd have smashed that car about a hundred times over. Yeah, did he that um, for this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but it, it is amazing what what you can do with with the self driving car technology, and that that is a great use of 
great use of AI. And we're seeing um, self-driving cars be practical today in some, in some areas. I mean, today you can go to a corporate campus and you can see a self-driving shuttle go from point A to point B with no driver. And the reason it can do that is that it's traveling at five miles an hour. Um, the route never changes, so it knows everything, the, the, or the designers know everything that might happen along the route. So there's no um, huge need for common sense decision making. And at five miles an hour, uh, especially if it uses computer vision to make sure it doesn't run over a pedestrian, there's very little chance of um, a major injury. Um, now you, you go up the scale a little bit and we're starting to see delivery vehicles. So in some cities, they're allowing self-driving, they look like little ice chests that are moving along the, uh, the sidewalks. Um, they use computer vision to avoid bumping into people and they deliver things. Um, and again, uh, same idea. It's a little bit harder because the more things can happen and there's more terrain differences. And, um, but they, they don't have the ability to use common sense. So if they get into a bad situation, they probably just stop. And I, and I imagine that happens quite a bit. Um, uh, and then the next step up are the self-driving taxis, which are being tested in cities like San Francisco um, by companies like Zooks and Aurora um, and in Phoenix by Google's Waymo division. Um, and what, what's happening there is they're, they're, they're all being tested in very small areas where they have every little, every stop sign, every fire hydrant, um, every work area, everything completely mapped out. And if any of that changes, the cars will get stuck or have an accident. Um, uh, and they're doing it, Waymo's doing it in Phoenix with safety drivers, the ones that don't have drivers. My understanding is that there's a remote driver, you know, who can drive the car with a joystick if necessary. But I'm very worried. And, and if you talk to people, we, we, we I don't know, we, we may have had this conversation because you're from the San Francisco area, um, that the self-driving taxis are often blocking traffic because they're they're so conservative and, and people honk at them and they go too slow. And was it you who, who was telling me that or was that somebody yeah, else? Yeah, yeah, we, we talked about that, I think, uh, last time. And the, the, the Waymo cars, it's mostly the Waymo cars. Um, we had tons of those. We still have tons of them in the city. And uh, they drive uh, like like a grandfather, uh, you know, literally on his on his last day of driving before he gives up the driver's license. It's, it's extremely um, cautious. It's um, in, in it, San Francisco is a dense city with lots of pedestrian traffic, and kind of everyone is there's, there's people on skateboards, there's people on bikes, there's people on scooters. And there's a lot of stuff going on. Usually, people watch out for each other, but the the idea of the algorithm is to be to do safety first. And I think this this is a big deal how you prioritize speed, safety, all of those things that go on automatically once you are an experienced driver and experienced in the city of San Francisco. And what happens is the there's people who walk cautiously into the street because they want to cross, but they wouldn't go. You can see them stopping. Most cars would just keep going. Uh, they stop, and they stop far away, and 
uh, a lot of um, accidents are being produced because they stop it in a way that even student drivers wouldn't do it. They are extremely cautious. Yeah. They get they get confused, as you say, by the littlest changes, and we have a lot of steep hills, and sometimes they uh, they have usually have human drivers, but it takes them a few seconds, or sometimes if they I don't know they fall asleep sometimes. Um, it takes them 20 to 30 seconds to resolve this. And uh, so I, I see it day to day, but I do f I do feel it's gotten way better. So we, we see a lot more of those cars and they, they still have two safety drivers. It could be that the drivers just put more effort in. But to me, it seems like there's less and less of this annoyance. They're still around, but they, they it, it's driving much smoother than I've ever seen before. And um, a lot of people call this the search function, right? You, you just need to map out the whole world, which Google is, and you know, um, has been doing um, uh, the whole time with Google Maps first, and then we, we have those the street view images. So, if you assume you have a perfectly mapped environment, these the self-driving um, cars might not look that bad anymore. And then the question is, will will they ever get to a hundred percent? It might take a long time, probably. But will they get to 99.9 in most situations, maybe not in a dense city like San Francisco, most cities in the world? You know what? I can see that happening um, very soon, maybe in the next five to ten years, that besides a few cities with lots of pedestrian traffic, those things will just do 99% of the driving, if not more. But what, what good is 99% if you still have to have a safety driver? That's a good question. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good <laughs> question. I mean, it still helps, right? Like what we use in the Teslas. Um, on the freeway, but it's it's. I don't know if we will ever get rid of the the safety driver for the next twenty to thirty years. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I think, and it's it's even it's even worse when you look at consumer vehicles like Teslas. Um, you know they they don't have the advantage of of knowing where every uh, stop sign and fire hydrant is and work area, uh, because they can drive anywhere. Um, so. That makes the problem that much that much harder, and there are a much wider range of things that can happen. You know, uh, black ice, you know, a, a ball bouncing in the street, um, you know, with a child following it. That people use their common sense to figure out what to do, and cars can't do that. You know, you you can you can write a conventional software program that says. If you see a ball bouncing in the street, stop because a child might follow. But that's very different than what a person does. Um, people people don't learn all these rules in driving school. Uh, they they use when they encounter when they encounter situations they use their common sense. So if yeah. a car can't have common sense, it's it's hard to imagine how uh, a consumer vehicle like a Tesla could ever really get to. Um, level three, four, or five driving capabilities. Le level three meaning uh, you no longer have to keep your hands on the wheel. You can, you know, watch a movie or read a book. Yeah. Well, one thing that they definitely have on, and I think this is this has been part of the AI threat um, that was painted, once you have an AI that learned it and learned it to a level that it is sufficiently good at it, Every single computer in the world who uses that model, um, you know, learning um, takes a long time and it needs a lot of GPUs and big machines. But once you've learned it and condensed it into a model, it's it's almost like an instant knowledge. Maybe the word knowledge is not correct, but it's an instant um, 
has instant access every machine in the world that wants to has an instant access to this and the uh, what we do as humans and you you feel this with children they go through this phase where they just like children and then they 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 go through a phase where they become more of an individual but they all have to go through the same steps of learning which seems incredibly inefficient maybe that's not true but it seems incredibly inefficient why not just start at a much higher level and it, to me that's that's where the, the whole driving debate comes in um, if if enough big companies work on this maybe they work together and they open source it eventually certain parts of it then the it's less of an incremental um, advancement it's it goes big jumps so it goes because there's more mapping out there there's better trained AIs there's there's the ball bouncing model um, has been incorporated and suddenly every Tesla in the world with the next download has it I think this is where everyone is so excited about that once you have a model that works and we, we have models that work at least good enough for, for other simpler things it suddenly is um, in, on everyone's car or in everyone's car and you know from there it only gets better than the human driver I think that's how the AI argument goes it is it is and and I agree with that. I mean, I, you know, I've seen my Tesla get better and better at, at, at various things because, you, you know, we get over-the-air updates once a month, just like, you know, just like you do on an iPhone. Um, but it still doesn't have common sense. So if, if the car is driving by itself and there's a, um, a, a sharp curve on the highway, if I let the Tesla continue to drive at that speed, it would go right off the road. Yeah. Is that is that a training issue or a data issue from, from your perspective? That so, so how did I learn to slow down on curves? You had an you accident know, yeah. probably at some point. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I might have almost had an accident, but, um, but it only took one, I can tell you that. Um, and, and you could take that one situation and I'm, I'm sure that Tesla will eventually know how to slow down going into curves, um, either because the engineers will write conventional if then else software, or because they'll, they'll train the system. Um, uh, you know, they'll have a, uh, a, a slow down machine learning algorithm. And they'll train it on a lot of uh, a lot of curves, um, uh, but there's two things there. One, the person only takes requires one example to train the machine. You need thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of examples of of those sharp curves. Um, uh, and then you have all the other all the other things that happen to you. You know, in, in, when you're driving, if you, if you talk to almost anybody, they'll tell you about driving situations that they think is, are one of a kind. Almost everybody has their stories. How are you going to train, um, you know, if there are uh, four billion people in the world and each one has their own driving stories, how are you going to get all of those into a computer? Yeah, I mean, this, the, 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 the problem you describe is real, that, that the significance of data that we perceive from like a singular event is not something that I think any AI has right now. So the, the, you can obviously add it to the model, but the, the way to, uh, to have a 
like like we can immediately feel like we are in danger and it immediately did the level of significance jumps so high that we will never do it again as you say but i think isn't that just a data problem again if 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 we would know that significance is so high if we should learn from one experience it's not that machines can't do it right they just can't see this the relevance right now which doesn't mean we couldn't find a relevance algorithm so to speak well suppose there are Suppose there are 10 billion of these um, unusual use cases out there in the world. Yeah. How do you identify all 10 billion? And yeah, the, same, the same way humans do, right? We, we have this, obviously, usually it's like um, you fear, like an emotion comes up with it. And, and it, it just it's burned in your memory. These these life altering events where you think you're gonna die, for a moment. Um, this is I don't know I, I don't know how it works, but I'm pretty sure death works in a similar fashion, right? We, we we immediately before we even consciously know it, we immediately know our life is in danger, and that's how we assign relevance. I think that that, that could be. But, but how will a computer ever be able to? Machine. But that's that's reasoning. How would how would you build that into a computer? No but one has any. There's we no scientist that. today that has any idea how to do that. I agree, but we do know that before we consciously know that. So the reasoning cannot be it. Like we, like b b when I was in an accident, I immediately had that sense of, you know, this fear, this 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 you know, hyped up an adrenaline, and that's before I could even understand if I had injuries, what happened, um, who was at fault, what actually happened, was the car running into me, was I running into someone? I know this is life life altering, so I just need to be as awake as possible. Um, that that was definitely not reasoning. I mean, everything else but reasoning. Let's put it this way. I, I think we can build an algorithm that way. When you say it wasn't about reasoning, so so what did you do? What did you do that wasn't reasoning? Well, I literally jumped out of the car in the middle of traffic because I chased after the person um, who was in the truck um, who kind of you know, dented my this side of my my car and. I ran after them in the middle of traffic. Like that was the opposite of reasoning. I was high, I was high on, the, on I was shock. I was probably in shock. Um, well, but I, I would I, I would argue it was reasoning. You know, maybe it was faulty reasoning. But there was a lot of reasoning going on there. Um, I mean, just just starting with um, uh, how you get out of your car. You know, so you know you. You reach with your hand, and you know if you apply pressure and 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 you you grasp the handle and you apply pressure, um, the door will open. Then you know you have to push. You know all of these things. How do you know all these things? Um, and and then you know how to how to how to run. And um, there's a lot of lot of common sense reasoning, common sense knowledge and reasoning that you do. Um, to to do all of that, and and how would a how would you get all that into a computer? No, yeah, but that's that. These are like uh, these are tr like that's triggered by the sense of of uh, of heightened um, attention. But the heightened attention was there before I did any of this. Let's put it this way: I mean, it it just happened like I don't know half a second, less than half a second. 
and I I was probably I barely have any memory, so I'm not really consciously aware what was I thinking or what was going through my mind. And those are all protective mechanisms, right, from the limbic brain. But if the limbic brain can do it and animals can do it 300 million years ago, I think we can do it too. That doesn't solve the reasoning problem. It just solves this immediate uh, problem of I'm in danger, so I need to pay attention, and that I push this higher in my in my learning um, priorities. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So I think that can be done, um, but obviously it's dangerous because if you have a very small data set, then you might learn incorrectly, and that's that's then you're back to the if and then problem, right? Which which has troubled computer science. Um, do you are you a fan of Ray Kurzweil? Um, do you believe in the singularity? Do you think that makes sense what he says? And do you think we have this unlimited amount of computing power in like just twenty thirty years from now? You know, I I don't agree with that. Um, so if you take a computer from 1980, I, I just read an, an amazing statistic that uh, today's iPhones have as much computing power as um, a Cray supercomputer in 1985. Yeah. So if you take an old style computer from 1980, 1985, um, and you put a word processing program on it, the only thing it can do is word processing. If you take a, a really powerful computer today that's, you know, billions or trillions of times more powerful than that 1980 computer, and you put a word processing program on it, and that's all you put on it, the only thing it can do is word processing. Now, if you make a computer that's a trillion times more powerful than the ones today, and the only thing you put on that computer is a word processor, that's all it's going to be able to do. It's going to be able to do it really fast, but that's all it's going to be able to do. Yeah, but that's well. Yes, you're absolutely correct. But we've been we've been putting other stuff than word processors on our iPhones, right? And I mean, I think the iPhone is less of the miracle in this. It's the server parks, the cloud, where um, a lot of the AI lives that basically crunches huge data sets and comes up with patterns. And especially unsupervised learning, you have that in your book. So patterns that humans would not see right away because there are too many dimensions or there's just that we, we can't really parse the big data set. But for AI, it becomes visible, these patterns. And I think this is where the magic is, right? This is this is where the, the self-driving cars come from. Um, they, they don't come from something that, that runs on the front end. Um, it, it is really something that, that happens in these server parks. And it's all a couple of Python modules and uh, mostly Linux. I think this this is where the magic happened in the last ten years, and if you scale, keep scaling this, um, and just thinking linearly, because we were kind of stupid humans, so just think linearly, that could be pretty amazing already. And if you think this is like Kurzweil says, this is logarithmic. Um, every eighteen month, it doubles, um, and then he says that's why he calls it the singularity. He says it's going to be so amazing. Um, it's kind of a hopeful, optimistic viewpoint. It's going to be so amazing that it solves, like we can't even look beyond it, it kind of solves all our problems. Um, it's, it's obviously, we can't verify that, but um, I think it's such a hopeful um, message, and it seems to make sense, just in, in the core statistics. And I agree with your point yeah. that if you don't develop the software, if you don't develop the right mindset, it's not worth anything. If you just build big machines that kill us, um, like war machines, new weapons of war, 
then it's not good at all. But if we manage to use it for something useful, and my question to this is usually entrepreneurship. It's because entrepreneurship can only live if you find someone who buys your stuff. If you just make things that nobody wants then and nobody's life is improved, then you're not an entrepreneur. At least, right. I mean, you tried, but um, it's successful entrepreneurs and it often takes a lot of tries and a lot of things to learn. You eventually make everyone's life that touches your solution, you make that better. And that person makes a voluntary decision to improve their life. So, so let's, yeah. let's go back for a minute to how self-driving cars work uh -huh. because uh, uh, most of the AI in self-driving cars is a set of supervised learning algorithms. So you've got a, uh, a program that can recognize a stop sign. That's one supervised learning algorithm. It's been trained, it's in the car, it knows how to use it. And there are about 50 of those, recognizing pedestrians. Recon there are other, other supervised learning programs that you know, figure out what the trajectory is of this person or this car you know, a second from now. Um, so there are all these, little, all these little individual programs in there and they're mostly connected by conventional if-then-else programming. There's very, you know, I, I don't know of, I can't think of, I don't know of anything in, in a self-driving car that is unsupervised learning where it's going out and, and figuring something out. Um, uh, it, it, they're very specific classification algorithms connected by procedural code. Um, where the unsupervised learning techniques have had um, impressive results are in cases like GPT-3, where um, you give the computer a supervised task of predicting the next word, um, uh, and you get you get some interesting results. How does a lane-changing algorithm work? I always thought that's unsupervised. Eventually, it figured this out on its own. Um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not sure, but I can't imagine how you would do that in an unsupervised way. I would imagine that it, it would either be a supervised learning algorithm or a reinforcement learning algorithm that, um, uh, you know, each each situation is um, is labeled with the with the correct response. And and actually, I think, um, oh, I I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, so this yeah you, you could look at you could look at lane changes as sup, as unsupervised learning in in one respect, which is that, um, in every situation, you can take the correct label to be what the actual driver did. Say you're in a Tesla, um, and you the, the system can look at okay, did the person change lanes or not? Um, uh, and and what preceded that, but that's that's self-supervised learning, which is considered a form of unsupervised learning. But that's really supervised learning, where the labels are provided by the um, uh, by the environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, this labeling is it seems very tedious. Um, the the whole idea that we have to um, run through this whole labeling process. So I, that's, that seems less less impressive than 
uh, new patterns that we find um, from the unsupervised learning. Uh, to be honest, I I don't know the exact boundaries between the two. I mean, it, it seems like they, they kind of shift or they keep shifting because uh, when it, it's nothing is ever, because the results kind of shape the, uh, the, the, how valid those results are, they seem to shape, um, they're kind of like labels in my mind at least. Um, so when I, when I, you come up with something that, that um, so I could say clustering, uh, and then you have that in your book that dimensions are being reduced. I found that really interesting that there is ways to overcome these hundreds of thousands of dimensions and Netflix had big issues with this. And then they came up with a way to um, move that into clusters and suddenly become way more, way more mm -hmm. easy to handle. Right. And uh, it's maybe it's just maybe that's a technique for all that data that's going on and all the dimensions in, in self-driving cars because there's so many inputs at any point of time and all of them could be important, like the ball bouncing in front of the car. Which but, but there's no kid around and maybe it's not a big deal to run over the ball. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm an idiot. Maybe I mix up a lot of things here. But that's kind of what, what I feel. You know, I'm, I don't. I have a, a practical idea of how AI works for me, and but seen from a Python script, um, and, and playing with some data frames. But the, the higher implications, I'm obviously not an expert at all. Yeah, you know, there are one of the one of the um, theories about how to get to human level intelligence and. Um, uh, it's one that's pushed by some of the big names in AI, like Jan Lecune and uh, Yashua Bengio, is that you can give a computer a task like uh, learning to predict the next word in a text um, with the idea that what's going on under the hood is that the, in order to do that task, the computer is learning way more than a simple function, that it's learning knowledge about the world, it's learning how to reason about the world, um, and, and, and so forth. Um, uh, but, you know, to me, that's kind of wishful thinking. Um, and, and I think the evidence of that is that it learned so many wrong facts, and uh, there's a much easier explanation of GPT-3, which is that it's just piecing together words and phrases um, that it's encountered in the uh, in the documents that it's um, it was trained on. Yeah, well, that's probably true. Uh -huh. I guess we will never know. That's the the problem with the whole validation, right? We don't know what's inside, how it learned, how it came to a certain conclusion. Um, I, that's kind of my favorite my favorite question is asking people, how do you how, how did you come to this conclusion? What what changed your your worldview or what changed your view on a specific question? With the AIs, you run against the wall. They, they even, at least the current AIs, they can't even if they would have a, a language, they can't tell you why they arrived at a certain conclusion. I feel that's very disappointing. Right, right. It's it's it, it's disappointing, and it's a it's a big problem for society. Yeah, we don't know, we don't know how they, they shift priorities, and we don't know how um, they assign weights of of competing priorities uh, like for driving everyone says we need to open source uh, that that algorithm because am i running over the uh, the, uh, the pedestrian in front of me or i'm going to break and i'm probably going to kill everyone inside the car and for that do i have to count um the numbers of passengers inside and the pedestrians or do i go by age and if the the 
pedestrian is really old and I don't I mean that's that gets infinitely complex it does it does it's probably more important to open source the data than the uh, than the algorithms I want to lead to a different um, very related topic and uh, I, I keep asking that a lot of people and the reasoning so interesting you know there has been this this debate for some time um, since this paper came out about a decade ago if we live in a simulation it's kind of a, a trope now yeah how do you feel about that? Um, how do you, how do you think that makes that, that original, um, the outset of that paper makes sense? And do, do you agree with that? Um, you know, there's there's really no way to tell. I mean, if we were in the matrix, we wouldn't be able to know. Um, that's why it's a thought experiment. Do 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 you do you feel like instinctively from what you've seen? We could build a world um, in, say, a thousand years from now or two thousand years from now that would be so indistinguishable from a real world or on a higher level, like we could build a whole universe because eventually it was just, you know, the size of an SD card and then we create then the, uh, the universe expanded. Could we, could we create that or that's something that will always be like in the sphere of, say, a religious person or like a religious person, a religious um, phenomena? Um, yeah. God is out there, and someone that we don't, but we kind of put in these brackets, we can't describe it, but it's someone with a, and I'm, I'm, what I'm getting to, has this whole, the whole universe, and AI too, is it guided by someone with, um, with a positive uh, message towards our future, or towards a human future, or is it all random, and uh, there was never a simulation, and there's nobody steering this whole thing. Right. What, what, right, what so there's... True? Yeah. You know, I think there's two questions there. One is, are we inside a simulation? And I don't think we can ever know, so I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that. The other one that's more more interesting to me, at least, is could we ever create um, a simulation like like The Matrix, like the, the movie, The Matrix and the movie Matrix? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're... We're just starting to see, you know, Elon Musk is just starting to interface computers to the brain. Um, but we're, a, we're a, a long, long way from figuring out how to make the brain um, see a reality. Uh, I imagine it's 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 possible someday. Um, I, I just don't know. Yeah, but do you feel? Do you feel this universe and the way humans have evolved? Someone is driving this car. Someone is 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 guiding us along the way. Might that yeah. be um, a spiritual figure? Or might that be aliens? Do you think there's something to it, or that's just? No, it's a, we're basically we might not be the only ones, but we kind of on our own in this universe. Yeah, no, it's a it's an ancient philosophical philosophical question. Um, you know, uh, in uh, I think it was around 1960 or 70, Arthur Kessler wrote a very well known book uh, called "The Ghost in the Machine." Yeah, um, and the idea is to um, to bring forward that ancient philosophical debate about whether there's a mind that's separate from the physical body. 
Um, is the mind just a, you know, the, the result of a collection of neurons, or is there something else? Um, and I think, I think Kessler's position was the materialism position, which is it's just a collection of neurons. Um, but just as an interesting aside, or at least it's interesting to me, I originally wanted to name my book, There's No Ghost in the Machine. Okay. As a takeoff on Kessler's Kessler's book, applied to computers, which yeah. I thought was I thought was very clever. But my publisher wouldn't let me do that because he said that they'd never find my book if somebody searched for it. Well, one more thing that a lot of people reading your book will be interested in. I think we we, we had this during the uh, uh, building up to the election. Is the whole definition of where will our jobs be in the future if AI takes so much of it away? And um, I, I, you know, that's a daily uh, self-driving cars is a big topic in this. Even if they only get to ninety-nine percent, that puts a lot of people who are on the freeways out of out of their job. Um, they might become city drivers, but there's way less city drivers needed um, compared to what the whole driving business or the whole trucking business um, is now requiring from drivers. When I think, uh, I, I, I assume we all agree that there's a, a lot of jobs will go away. Um, and maybe just, it doesn't have to be with AI, it's just the, the technological progress. And now finally, it seems with COVID, we are all adopting a lot of progress much quicker. Um, I think that's a good thing. But, but where do you think related to this, will there be the new opportunities? So where, where will the jobs sprout um, AI might take away? Um, so, so first of all, I don't really believe AI is going to take a lot of jobs. Um, I, I think conventional computer software has been taking a lot of jobs over the years. Um, you know, over the what 50, 60 year history of uh, of computers, um, you you you've had word processors replace secretaries, tax prep software. Um, uh, internet travel sites displace travel agents. E-commerce is, is killing brick-and-mortar retail. Um, all of those are conventional technology. Um, and the history of automation is such that uh, technology has always created more jobs than it's replaced. Always. Um, you know, in... in 1776, farms employed 80% of the people, and now we produce more food with only 2% employed in agriculture. Um, but, you know, people do, do a lot of other things. So, you know, the real question for me is whether um, AI is going to change that, um, uh, that historical um, trend. And... And I don't really see it. I don't really see um, AI taking a lot of jobs. Uh, um, the, the jobs that AI is going to take are the ones that can be classified, characterized as classification tasks, you know, and, and with visual classification tasks being especially vulnerable. So spotting terrorists in airports, reading MRIs, sorting parts in a factory, um, you know, Voice recognition technology is impacting customer service jobs that, that involve following a script because um, 
people can just say the words and the computer will, will recognize the words and and can follow the script itself. Um, but I don't I don't see these as really um, having as big an impact as traditional computer software. And traditional computer software for 60 years has created more jobs than it's taken away, and I don't see any reason why that wouldn't continue. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that part, that there's this this process of, of moving from a low productivity to a higher productivity job. It's it's still intact. Nothing has changed. The, the trouble, too, is that we we see the destruction immediately and it affects us uh, affects us emotionally uh, first and then the build up to what are going to be those new jobs it's it's not often not that clear and you know there's always the anxiety that you might have been a winner in the old system but you're not a winner in the new system um, so and that that anxiety is always felt as a negative emotion so I think that's what rattles people especially now that we, we see such a high adoption rate of new technology I think it, which is fantastic that's what entrepreneurs have been dreaming of uh, for the last 10-15 years because a lot of things that I personally my startups put into um, the this world in from in the 90s late 90s and early 2000s they weren't really adopted um, widely and uh, you can say oh that's because this product was crap but even as a technology it wasn't really adopted like video conferencing was um, technically possible um, in the early 2000s and it wasn't really picked up and now suddenly it's on everyone's on everyone's daily agenda and I think this is fantastic that we we, we, we see this this big adoption and to be honest I'm, I'm not so sure how AI as a, as, a, as a bracket as a definition as a field will 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 change that and how, how many jobs we we you say, oh, this is computer software, and this is like advanced computer software, and this is AI, because they're so interchangeable at the margins. Um, so the, I, I agree with you there that maybe AI is, is as a buzzword, extremely overhyped, but as it is often happening, it follows the same path after technological destruction. One thing that I, what I keep thinking is, do, is that AI has, it gives us better decision-making and you can say this about a lot of stuff, but I think AI especially gives us a way to see patterns and to kind of be ahead of of a customer's um, potential customers' preferences before that customer even realizes he or she has these preferences. And what I mean by that, the example is, I always felt like we, if AI takes takes so many basic decisions um, out of the, the equation because it becomes cheap and um, way cheaper than a human to look at certain data, it's better to have AI do this and eventually AI is good enough for, for a lot of fields of data. W humans can focus on this next level of decision and can better anticipate customer demands and I always felt like my example is um, someone comes into a bar and has never been in that bar and the bartender AI looks at them and say, oh, this is your favorite drink. I always felt that's that's how I feel AI is going to change that game. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 that, that is how it will change it. But is, Richard, is it just a, is that just contributing to the same trajectory that computer software has been on for 60 years? Oh, it's you just know, an extension oh, of that. I fully agree. It's an extension yeah. of that. But I think it, it might give us, given what COVID did, it gives us a lot of momentum. And that momentum, we feel the destruction first. Uh, that's, that's 
really affecting people's minds together with social media. It is. And, and you know, to me, the big, the big issue with jobs is that, you know, losing a job is like one of the worst things that can happen to a person. Um, uh, and as a society, uh, you, you know, we, if you lose, if you lose um, 6% of the jobs every year, but you create 8% new ones, economists would say that's great, but it's awful for the people who lost their jobs. And as a society, I think we need to take more responsibility for you know, retraining those 6% so they can take some of those jobs in the new 8%. And you know, we've never really done that. Um, governments aren't, aren't, you know, haven't taken the lead in that. And it's kind of, it's kind of been, you know, the people who lose their jobs are the losers. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, uh, I would, I would, you know, and now we're getting into politics, but I would be very much in favor of some kind of tax on uh, technology companies that went to support uh, people who lose their jobs because of technology. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I, one thing that I think, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think, I think Bill Gates suggested that. Yeah. I feel one thing that always comes to mind is I read this book and the main thesis was, I unfortunately forgot the title of it, is that while society as a whole has gotten more productive and has gotten better at extending um, the society's, the individual's lifespan, for the individual, the, the freedom and the, the life itself might not have gotten much better. And the, the, the idea comes from think about the life of a typical hunter-gatherer, that's how far back this book went, and then how the life immediately, at least for the beginning of that phase, in a more agricultural society changed. It wasn't the same kind of freedom for the individual life decreased. Maybe that's true, in, in the, the, the quality of life decreased, and that's different for the, for the next generation. The next generation starts at a different point of, um, of base point. And as you add more generations, it, it becomes better. But for everyone in between, it for that individual, it seems like the quality of life has decreased. And I think we are in, in a similar junction right now. We feel that like we had this, this we, we call it the boomer generation who, who came out of the Second World War and built wealth in the 70s, 80s, 90s, great productivity growth, at least initially in the 60s. And uh, then technology took off and just accelerated that. But what it has hadn't happened in the last 40, 50 years, and specifics are debatable, is that this stagnation came about and we don't have as many opportunities as we had, if we seemingly had, especially for young people. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of the, the, what people suggest is, well, it's because software and AI as a, as a subfield of this has gotten so good that you need way more experience to be better than the machines. And that's yeah. why you see so little opportunity for young people because they are not as good yet at making good decisions. At you know the, the CEOs have gotten older and older. They're still they're now in their um, I think early seventies as an as an average age. Uh, that's something we've never seen before. The presidents are getting older and older. So we had that juncture that there's a, like a promising world behind, and maybe that's happening in twenty or thirty years. But for that generation that's kind of in between the millennials and uh, the generation just before that. It might not be, well, the, the, as you say, the jobs are being created. They might not be as good in those jobs. You know, the 6% who got out of their jobs, the 8% who come in, that might be different people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, 
I, I would say two things. First, just a comment about quality of life. Nobody's going to convince me that my life was better before I had a remote control and I had to walk up and manually turn the knob on my TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in, you know, in, in terms of the new generation, um, uh, and you know, this is going to to a to a, uh, a, a newer generation person, Gen X, Y, Z. It's going to sound like an old boomer talking. Um, but we always had the idea of paying your dues. So before you could get into a profession, you really had to go in, start at the ground level, work your butt off, and learn something. Um, and, you know, what, what some people are saying about the, the newer generations is that they're not willing to do that. It's not that the opportunities aren't there. They're just not willing to pay their dues. Yeah, that's 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 probably true. What I think what the problem is, is that uh, the millennials have seen that by the time this industry or that company that they invested a decade in, by the time it, they, mat they are maturing into a more senior position and it pays off, these companies are not around anymore. Yeah. And that's not a false assessment i think that that's spot on there isn't there's exceptions um to that rule but in general i think that's a spot on observation is that obviously google's still around but there's a lot of technological change that just when you look at the 500 biggest companies in the u.s 20 years ago and now uh, there isn't a lot of companies left and i think this is a worldwide phenomenon so there's this long-term investment the, the boomer model where you kind of willingly torture yourself for a while because you go in and learn everything from the ground up and then but the company secures your well-being once you mature within the organization or you, you, you do lateral changes i think this model is gone and the, the model we are now t going towards is that you have one grand idea literally one thought in your whole life and you wait 55 years for it then you make one app make one call to your broker uh, whatever that decision is and then that's it then you never have to work again but you have to wait 55 years for this. And I think that's what <laughs> it feels painful. That <laughs> it's a, no it's purpose. A, yeah, no, it's an interesting perspective. But I, I agree, the rules have changed. I mean, it's, there's no more safety in, um, uh, in, in, in working for a big company anymore, starting out at the bottom and, and working your way up. But I think the, the concept still applies. Um, you, you know, you, you get in and you learn something. You know, you learn how insurance works or you learn how... Um, you know, whatever industry you're in, you learn how it works, and that makes you more valuable to the next company. Um, so, yeah, you may not be paying your dues and working your way up in one company, but you you can do it. You know, going from from company to company, or um, uh, or you know, even being um, uh, you know a, a, an individual contributor, or even being a yeah. So I I I think you know my sense is that. The opportunities are still there. Um, uh, I, I, I think we have a big problem with wealth inequality. Um, that you know we're not we're not we're not addressing, and that um, uh, that's impacting the millennials. And and I, I I don't blame them for being upset about that. Um, uh, but you know to to look at. To look at the world and say there's no way to get ahead, I just, I think that's just a self-defeating attitude. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, 
I'm in in Gen Gen X, so I'm, I'm just at the at that border. But I agree with you in the assessment that wealth inequality we're we're definitely at that turning point, and the solution obviously for me, and that's big reason why I do this podcast is figuring out where are these opportunities and why haven't we created more opportunities the last 20 years especially um, I think the 90s was the late 90s was the exception to the rule in the last 50 years why didn't that happen in a country that's so open to opportunity like like the US and uh, how can we fix this going forward um, and what uh, my answer is obviously entrepreneurship as as a way to change the world um, driven by technology because this is where this productivity boost comes from that makes us all better off and mm-hmm. have a better life for our children and there, i don't know if you, if you have specific ideas where you feel like even if ai is overvalued as a hype word where do you feel ai will really make an impact what are those opportunities for entrepreneurs say the next five to 15 years where something is bubbling up but it's it's not yet a hype machine that we read every day yeah, so, you know, and, and you know, when I, when I talk about AI, I'm talking about AI and not traditional computer software. Yeah. Um, uh, so, again, I think uh, where AI is making a difference and where it can make a difference is in um, taking over those tasks that can be, class, that, that can be characterized as classification tasks. Um, so... That, that's where you have to look. Um, but to apply that technology is an interesting problem. Um, I think some companies say, okay, I'm going to go hire the best machine learning expert I can find, and they're going to bring AI into the company and transform the company. Well, that's not an approach that's going to work. Um, you, you, you can bring in the smartest machine learning person in the world and they're going to have no idea how your business works. So if you want to bring AI into your company, you've got, to, you've got to somehow educate your product managers and your business decision makers um, what's possible with AI. And everybody's got to put their heads together, ideally with a machine learning expert or a data science team, um, to figure out how to apply AI to your company. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, you know, one thing that, that crossed my mind um, a while ago is something like a Boston consulting, but just for AI consulting. There's probably a ton of people who already do this, so this is not a new idea. But a way to maybe not charge $2,000 uh, a day, but maybe charge $1,000 a day. But finding that unique data set, um, I think this is what it's all about, finding that unique data set and trying a bunch of um, different um, learning models and then validating them. This this is relatively easy to do if the data can be found uh, within a company, but it can have immediate effects and you can see um, results in terms of conclusions that maybe people know intuitively, but have never really taken a look at. Like they suddenly realize, oh, only dentists from that area actually subscribe to our product or mm-hmm. um, because this is, this is only relevant there or we have no competition there. I think there's a lot of insights but it takes a while to find that data set. I think this is this is the problem generally with AI is is finding that data set and the granularity is fine enough um, and, and big enough um, to and then validating whatever whatever the learning outcome is. Um, that's a big challenge. And as you say, you need that industry knowledge, and but you also need AI knowledge. Um, right. 
I don't know right, what's you, the best I, way to combine that as a, as a, as a startup. Yeah, I, I, I just don't think I just don't think a company is going to be successful just bringing in a consultant or a data science expert or machine learning expert and and turning them loose. I think they have to commit to um, learning what's possible with AI um, and, you know, ultimately, I think the business has to say to that data scientist, look, we've got all this data about our customers. Can't you figure something out um, uh, about the customers that'll help us sell more to them? And, you know, then you're, then you're at least pointing the data scientist in the right direction. Um, yeah. the, 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 the business team and the IT team know, know where that data is. They know what's good about it and what's bad about it. Um, uh, the data scientist is not going to be able to figure any of that out. Yeah, it's definitely compartmentalized. I had Mike, Mike Van Alstein on in the last, last podcast. We talked about how AI can solve so many things in, in the medical field, in healthcare, but how difficult it is to get any data um, in a wide enough data set. And even most studies that are run in big hospitals, they have maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000 um, different um, screening for like cancer screening. And that's already a huge data set that's very, um, very expensive to get to replicate in, the, in other studies where you want to run AI on. And I thought that's really sad because you could have such an impact on people's life expectancy if you could apply that technology, oh, yeah. but it's just not there, uh, the data set, in a way that you can easily access it. And that hopefully is yeah. going to change one day. Yeah, it, it drives me crazy that we're such a privacy-focused society that you know, we can't get all that data together. It would be, it would be so beneficial. I mean, I, I just get frustrated when I go to my, um, my doctor who's, who I've been seeing for, for 35 years, and you know, when I say to him, well, what did, I, what did that test show last year and two years ago and three years ago? He starts paging through his hand-scribbled notes and, oh, it was this and then this. What did I say it was two years ago? I mean, it just, you know, you don't even want to ask the question. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the healthcare field has completely missed out on, I mean, software automation in the first place, that's slowly now making its way into the field, but it's definitely not eating healthcare uh, as it does all the other fields. And AI just hasn't arrived there yet. And people don't understand the value of that data. They, they think it's just random and it's just there for this one particular moment and then it just fleets away. They don't understand that each data set that each piece of data that you gather has a meaning for whole humanity, so to speak, because if you have enough data, you could see the patterns why some people get certain diseases and others don't. Exactly, exactly. It, it, it's, um, it's a real shame that we can't, we just can't seem to put that together. It's uh, maybe an opportunity there. Yeah, it's a, it's a big opportunity. You know, uh, that, that was one of, that was Obama, was, that was one of his cornerstone um, initiatives to try to get all that data together to to, um, to build the um, uh, what did he call it the the home I, f I forget what he called it but yeah he, he they they weren't very successful with that yeah well it, it's a very difficult field to be in uh, there's so many legal issues and so many there's so many gatekeepers in that field. Um, yeah. You've got to find, um, they call it the beachhead, that easy place where you can kind of build build your company and then go from there once you have enough recognition. But uh, no, nobody has been successful yet. Uh, but it's it's definitely happening. 23andMe is one of those 
companies who found Debbie Chat, um, probably yeah. with a lot of money from Google, but they 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 hover over this DNA test data and. I think Ancestry and this, like every country has a few companies that do this exact same kind of test, but I don't think they share any data. So the data kind of set is still limited. Right. Right. Yep. Well, on that, on that note, we found some opportunities in this. Um, on that note, I really <laughs> want to thank you, Steve, for coming on. That was really interesting. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with me. It's been a great conversation, Taurus, and I really enjoyed it.